Welcome to the Project Fitness Podcast for fitness professionals and fitness enthusiasts who want to be better at life. Fitness is the greatest investment of anyone's life. However, it's not easily obtained, and anyone who says different is just plain wrong. Join award-winning personal trainer and strength conditioning coach Chris Fudge every Monday as he explores all aspects of fitness that can lead you to your optimal health. If you want to learn useful, practical how-tos of weight loss, exercise science, nutrition, or just how to optimize your time in the gym and life, this show is for you. Welcome to the Project Fitness Podcast, and I am thrilled today to be sitting down with one of the world's leading experts in human movement. A two-time New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling author, speaker, co-founder of the Ready State, which has evolved from the mobility wad, the, the one and only, the supple leopard, Kelly Starrett. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, man. It's such a pleasure. I don't know if uh, summer has hit where you guys are up north, but uh, summer is here. We just skipped right over spring, so uh, it's great to be here. Oh, man, summer hit two days ago. Oh, good. I think people were shoveling about two weeks ago, and then <laughs> two days ago, all of a sudden, it's over 20 degrees. No, Ontario's going to be great. It's um, like the, you guys have the greatest six-week-long summer of all time. If you don't like the weather, just wait five minutes. That's great. <laughs> this is true. This is totally true. Awesome. Well, today we're going to talk a handful of things about human movement, but one of the things that comes to light is, is you are such a pliable influence when it comes to the exercise industry. You've worked in all major sports, Tour de France. Mm powerlifting, your influence on CrossFit has been so massive over the years. You were one of the, the original, the OG CrossFit gyms. I think back you were like the 21st one ever, and there's over 10,000 now. So I guess my, my first question to you is, you know, wh- where, where do you fit in in all these different modalities of sport? How do you get in there? Uh, I tell you, that's a great question. I'm not sure even what my job is these days. Am I a physio? I was trained as a physio. Am I a strength coach? Well, I can certainly do that too. Um, you know, I think we're in an age where we are seeing sort of the rise of the generalist, this person who can deeply integrate a lot of information and then synthesize and apply that information. And if I have any, oh man, not many skills, talk to my wife, I'm not a very skilled person, but I'm pretty good at pattern recognition. And so, um, you know, and, and honestly, um, if we go back and look at Sir Francis Bacon, the, you know, the father of the scientific method, you know, scientific method was really about induction or understanding patterns through large data sets. That's really what we're trying to drive. We see a lot of information. We're trying to understand what that information is. And, you know, if we went back to university, the thing that I ended up falling in love with, I thought I wanted to go to med school until I had an epiphany that I hated the second semester of OCHEM and didn't like bench science and just wasn't me. And I ended up switching to cultural geography, which is really like, if you ever remember the great book, Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond, it's really looking at the influence of humans on the environment and humans on other humans. And... What's interesting then is if you synthesize all that, you end up where I am right now, which is I get to cross lots of different fields and boundaries. So I'm constantly thinking about what is it I know? How does what I know relate to this other information and this other experience? And then what is the actionable or practicable 
sort of outcome of that, the, those data sets, that, that experience. And so what's fun is everyone has a body and I was clever enough to figure out early on that the shoulder is the shoulder and it's been the shoulder for the last 10,000 years and human beings are obsessed with going fast and lifting heavy weights and being awesome. And this is not a new phenomenon. The Chinese were lifting with stones 3,000 years ago. Look at the, the training out of Iran. Look at what's happened with the, the cultural movement practices of Muay Thai. Look, I mean, all of a sudden we have all of these, I mean, look at the ancient Greeks, right? And we have all of these really interesting breadcrumbs around what it is we think humans can do. And then it turns out since humans are always obsessed with going faster and lifting more, because this is what we've been doing, um, then what you, we see is that if you understand the techniques underlaying Olympic lift gym, gymnastics, sport, running, sprinting, swimming, they're all different expressions of the best position of the human physiology. Then you overlay that on top of what we think is normative based on being a physio or having a classical sort of Western medicine provider education. And you have this really clear pathway of saying, this is what we should be able to do. Why can't you do that? Then it's just a matter of technique and interest in the ways that you want to train that system to be the most durable, to be the most effective, the most efficient. And so what ends up happening sometimes is if I get to work with a big international team or a world record holder or world champion, I get to see all the dirty laundry. And I am never, ever after anyone's job. I just want to see them and understand what it is they're, they're doing in coaching. So what's great is everyone shows me what's working, not working. And then I take that to somewhere else and then multiply that by like 15 years. And all of a sudden you, I have seen everyone's dirty laundry and I get to see what the best expressions of coaching are. Then I come home and I say, well, how do we translate what it is we're understanding about our formula one experience into the real world of men and women of people? Because sport really isn't just about entertainment. It can't be. Otherwise let's just go until we break and we'll burn the bodies of our athletes as entertainment on the funeral pyre of, of gladiators, right? And what we just, I feel like that's not what we understand. And right now we're in this really interesting time where there's a big mismatch between environment and organism. We don't move very much. We don't go in the sun. We don't hold foods. We don't eat connective tissue. You eat four kinds of vegetables in a year, not 40. Um, your sleep is eroded. COVID has ripped us apart from our tribes and our communities. What you see is this, an organism that is so resilient and so robust and incredible at surviving. I mean, I have a good friend um, who says humans are really good at two things, starving, you know, and reproducing. And when you look at those things, starving, it means we are very, very, very tolerant. And sometimes we accept that tolerance of the machine, the tolerance of our abilities, of our tissues, of our brains, and we confuse that with what is best practice. Because if we look at Yuval Harari or some of the writers um, who are thinking critically about this, we aren't going to be immortal, but we may be amortal, which means we may be 120 years old. I already have a 100-year-old family member I go to dinner with regularly 
She barely uses her walker. She cuts her own hair. She's a hundred. She does. She gets in and out. Doesn't need a wheelchair. So I'm confronted with the this reality for me about wow, what does the next fifty plus years look like in my practice so that I can be durable and functional and still maybe a little bit faster and still a little bit stronger and and I think that's really what's interesting. How do we take the lessons of Formula One and then apply it to the rest, which is you know, the highest calling of, of science in the first place is to improve the humanities. It's not, it's not just to, uh, for pure science sake. Mm -hmm. your, your pattern recognition that you talk about, I remember the first time that, you know, you came in into my industry, my world as a personal trainer, I was at a powerlifting meet. Someone is there with a softball. And I'm like, I'm like, what are they on a softball for? It's powerlifting. <laughs> you know, before they went and warmed up on, on bench press. And I was so curious about that because I'd never seen that before. But then, you know, the supple leopard fell in the lap and then mobility wad fell in. And, and now that's a pattern recognition I see. It's normal for people to grab softballs or lacrosse balls and use that stuff. What made you go from, or how did you go from, okay, we need to do some tissue work. Oh, I'm going to go with a softball or I'm going to use a lacrosse ball. And then what patterns were you kind of seeing where that was in mm. sports or people needed to, to start doing that? Well, you know, if you've ever used the word mobility, that's 100% my fault. And I apologize for that. And I explicitly use the word mobility to describe, do you have the tissue range excursion capability to express this? If you were unconscious, would your hip flex, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like agnostic. You do, is your handbrake on? Yes or no. And we see stiffness all the time in our athletes. And then secondarily, flexibility wasn't enough because that's sort of, I, I don't want to be flexible. I want to be dynamic and have control. I want to be springy. I don't want to stretch the springiness out of myself. And what we saw was that athletes weren't stretching. They hated stretching, right? And it was just because it was passive end range isometric holds for indiscriminate amount of time. And here's the truth. People do what's work, what works and makes them feel better. And they reject what doesn't work and what doesn't make them feel better. And anytime you see someone doing something and you're like, eh, there's no science to that. I'm like, well, how long have you been doing that? Do you feel better? Then you're right. And it may be, you know, it may have varying degrees of effect, right? But, you know, and belief effects are real. I mean, the same way that I look at you in the eyes, and I'm like, you're a stud. And you're like, oh, I'm a stud. You know I mean? Like that's a belief effect, right? And what we saw was, you know, and, and some of my work as a, as a young physio student was that I was seeing simultaneously in the, in the hospital, it would be six weeks before someone could be seen for a, phys a physio appointment. Right. And I was like, Ooh, and then it's two more weeks for a follow-up. And I was like, well, what are we going to get done between now and then? So I really started to shift loci of control. And again, I was really interested in behavior, right? This, what are the behaviors in human and environment, right? And some of those behaviors are, well, how, who owns pain? How do we self-soothe? And why is it that these things, which I've come to believe are unskilled, can require some skill, but unskilled in terms of you don't need a medical professional to make yourself feel better. And so what we started to do is realize that our current model wasn't robust enough. It's great if you can see a physical therapist. It's great if you can see a chiro. Great if you can see a napropath. Great if you can see a naturopath. Great. There are not enough in your gym. And they do not see you when you have pain. Otherwise, you'd take a day off and you'd be like, well, today I have shoulder pain and today I have knee pain and I'm play football. So everything hurts, doc. What now? And what we've said is, well, you know, pain is a medical problem. And so then we left people to go out there and self-soothe and they self-soothe with opiates. 
This helps you with ibuprofen and bourbon and THC and anything that they could do to make themselves feel better. So it's really disingenuous to say um, pain's a medical problem. If you have night sweats, dizziness, fever, vomiting, nausea, occult, clear mechanism injury, got hit by a car, you have disease, or you can't do your job or can't do your role, go get, a, go get help. But everything else, I mean, I'm pretty sure people are allowed to change their own car oil. And if you can do that, I guarantee you that you can address stiffness in your quadriceps. So I began to see and have this question about, well, first of all, when do we do all of this, right? Because what I was seeing was these really great programs dropped in on top of other programs, dropped in on top of other programs. And then what we see is that you can't see or understand what's happening. You can't, you can't get through the forest for the trees because there's so much, so much information. And right. So where's the through narrative. And then again, are we substituting rolling around on a foam roller for a decent warm-up and skill practice in the gym? No, that's a terrible substitution. Um, should I be using the time in the gym to train or a time in the gym to, to decrease my session cost and make myself feel better? Maybe both, but I want to train there. So what we saw is, because I owned a gym for 15 years, is that I saw where the rubber hits the road. And the rubber hits the road is I want to spend as much time as I can in the gym. But what we ended up seeing was, man, people had a good time. They had a big chunk of time in the evening where they could do some soft tissue work before they went to bed. So we saw better adherence for that. 10 minutes of, of taking inventory and say, well, what's stiff today? What didn't feel great today? How can I self-soothe? What, what I got to work on tomorrow? And then let's apply some techniques to that. And 10 minutes flies by and you were just going to be on Instagram and watching Netflix anyway. So that's a perfect place to do that. But then also we started to appreciate that, you know, people thought they were rolling or using any technique just for pain. But weirdly where I think I made a big dent in the world was saying, hey, we mobilize for position to improve position. And so, you know, one of the things that we know is that pain doesn't mean tissue damage or tissue trauma at all. It just means your brain is asking for you to pay attention. It's a request for change, as my friend Perry Nicholson says. I love that. It's a request. Hey, pay attention. So if you showed up at the gym and you had crappy wattage or crappy poundage or crappy output, I'd be like, what's wrong with you? You know, and you'd be like, oh, I smashed a bunch of pizza and didn't sleep and my newborn baby's up or I flew, took a red eye or I got in a fight or I'm super stressed at work. And we're like, oh, okay, that makes sense, right? Your knee hurts and you're like, I don't know, maybe I tore my meniscus, I have knee cancer, it's rabies. Like, oh, well, let's not touch it or load it. Like, what, are you serious? I'm like, I turn around to the gym. I'm like, well, how many people have pain in here? And every hand goes up. I'm like, okay, so let's just not pretend like, you know, this isn't part of being a human. So what we realized, one, is that we needed to help people have a set of tools to self-soothe, right? Two, is that no one was caring about position. No one. I mean, seriously, like you have to be able to put your arms over your head if you want an Olympic lift. And yet people couldn't do that. And they were wondering why their Olympic lift sucks. And I was like, eh, it's weird. Like you're a swimmer, but you don't have a stable shoulder position on your catch. I'm like, well, that's weird. I mean, it's less choice. I don't know if that'll ever cause pain. Oftentimes we see high load, high repetition with compensation being less effective patterning, less effective energy transfer, less effective force transfer, less effective mechanical transfer, but it won't always cause pain at first, right? But what we did see is, man, those inefficient positions make you suck. So, well, it turns out the same sets of tools I was using to restore your positions 
are the same sets of tools I was using to improve your output and improve your wattage, the same sets of tools I was using to help you self-soothe and restore your native range. Because if you, you know, you're complaining about your biceps hurting and I go to bend your arm and it gets stuck at 90 degrees. Does everyone agree that that's sort of a weird problem, right? And your neck is hurting every time you try to eat and you can't get your hand to your face and you have to use this long fork. And you're like, that sounds so dumb. And I'm like, well, it's an Olympic lifting shoes and a belt, right? And you can't flex your hip all the way down. And no wonder your back hurts. So what we started doing is saying, here's what everyone should be able to do. Let's go ahead and put movement quality and full normative range back in the table. So this conversation about, do you turn your feet out when you're squat? I'm like, well, you may have to because you can't do any other way. But I want to give you as many choices and movement solutions as I can. And that's really why I ended up being useful to a lot of these high working coaches and athletes because they're experts in training and experts in competition, but not necessarily experts in positional restoration and understanding the limitations of position. So it sounds like you would come into this being a little bit skeptical of how the medical field is working in, on the athletic side. Mm. No, no, no. I'm not skeptical. I just had my knee replaced in October after a horrible crash on skis seven years earlier, right? It's a miracle. What I'll say is, what does the model say? How does the data suggest our model is working? Well, women are tearing their ACLs at six to eight times the rate of men. We're seeing the injury rating kids ACLs up 400%. There are more back surgeries and hip surgeries than ever before, more ACL injuries, more lost user days, more chronic pain. The number one reason you go see a physician now is not the common cold, it's musculoskeletal dysfunction. Um, are we more diabetic? Yes. Are we crushed with more calorically dense foods? Yes. Or so more obese? We're seeing greater depression. So let me ask you, how's it working? right? It's like, we're really good at putting out fires once we have a gigantic raging fire. But it seems to me that we all can agree that fire safety matters. And again, the problem is the human system is so complex that it's difficult for us to understand inputs and outputs. So what we can do is focus on, are you sleeping? Do you eat whole foods? Do you drink water? Do you walk? Are, you know, and then do you have normal range of motion? Are you expressing that normal range of motion in Pilates or yoga or CrossFit or powerlifting or whatever it is you want to do? I'm agnostic about the cool stuff that the human body can do and what you're interested in. I have strong feelings about the best way to prepare for those things for sure. But this is your life. And if it's church and Peloton and deadlifts, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Agreed. So, so Ready State kind of has evolved into that, correct? Yeah, we... We went from mobility wad for a long time and, you know, we were the first wad anything. And then all of a sudden there was 10,000 wads and it was very confusing. Sobriety wad, you know, I'm like, we have nothing to do with sobriety wad. Right. But our names were the same. What's that? Real thing. Sobriety wad. Yes. Yeah, a real thing. And, um, you know, super cool, but we were also, you know, realized again, we had created a name and 10 years ago, I was like, man, 11 years ago, I'm so clever. I've got mobility. No one uses that word. I'm the first wad mobility wad. I <laughs> like how clever I am. But we, I was serving an athletic population understood what that meant. And when I realized that we had the secret sauce or some secret sauce to be able to change the world, people didn't understand the word mobility. And they certainly didn't understand wad. And they'd be like, wad, like W A D. And I was like less wad. So um, 
what we did was we also realized we wanted to talk and actually learn what we're, you know, take what we're learning in these high performance environments and then reinvest that into this idea that what is it you want to get ready for? How do we manage the psychology, the biosocial, you know, components of the human with being able to do what they want to do in the context of their lives? And that's why we became the ready state because really like it could be ready for going for a walk or ready to lose some weight or, you know, let's get you as ready as we can today and we'll get the rest of it tomorrow. You talked about baseline normative ranges. The example you gave was you want to weight lift, you got to put your arm overhead. With ready state, when you work with general pop, do you have baselines you go to? Like Yes. They're, they're full normative ranges. This is the range of motion that every child has, that every doctor agrees you should have. This is why we measure it. This is why we know a knee should be able to do this. I should be able to take your elbow and flex it all the way, right? An ankle should have this much range of motion. Your shoulder should have this much range of motion in this position. And what we tell people though is, hey, our job here, part of the reason we are in a training environment is to figure out what's what we're missing, right? To figure out. I, you know, rarely do we look, I'm working with, I get to work with some of the best bikers in the world, best mountain bikers, best cyclists. Cycling is not natural for the human body. It's not, you don't have, you can't create support and stability through your hip, through the pedal, the way you can, when you're standing, just, it's a different expression, right? You're you just, it's not how the body is trying to create stability. But then you never ever extend your hip. You're just in flexed hip position and you're there for, I don't know, thousands of an hours, right? Generating millions of Watts in that position. So your body is like, well, all right, let's reinforce this position. That's what you want to do. You got it. So all of a sudden you can't have any, you don't have any hip extension. I wonder why your back hurts, and you, you know, and can't take a breath in that position and heads cranked back. So keep in mind that what we're always doing is chasing full normal. We're chasing your native God-given ability to express that range of motion. And what we're doing is realizing that, hey, we can get people into the best position that's available to them today, which will be enough to protect them or at least improve their power as we, because we're durable and resilient and tolerant, as we also restore your position. And the difference between a gold medal and a last place finish is small amounts of wattage, small amounts of power, small amount, small microseconds, right? Just tiny emits. And so when we look at mechanical efficiency of someone, you know, what we really want to make sure is that they're not having to compensate or go around a problem, that they're not being mechanically inefficient. And we do that by restoring their range of motion and giving them and teaching them to control. So what we can do for people, because I don't think people have a schema for understanding training, we have sold training as physiologically based. I train so I'd be aerobically more fit or anaerobically more fit. I train because I build strength or power. And what we want people to appreciate is there's as much coordination training in the actual movements. There's much skill in there and learning and, and efficiency training as, as the physiologically. So what I'm looking for is, for example, let's talk about putting your arms over your head. I'm like, great, you put your arms over your head, cool. Now, can you do that and hold an isometric there? Great. Can you flip upside down and do an isometric and a handstand hold? Great. Now it's from gone from closed chain to open chain, right? And I'm like, oh, you can press a barbell there. Can you press a dumbbell there? Oh, we've just gone from closed torque to open torque, right? Can you do it from a pull-up? 
Can you push in that position? Can you arrive from that position from a snatch? Can you rise from that position from a press? Can you do that in downward dog? And now I'm like, oh, great, you can, fantastic. Now we can challenge that with cardiorespiratory demand, metabolic demand, <laughs> speed, load, right? And all of a sudden you're like, holy crap. What we're seeing is that the most skilled person has the most robust positioning across the most demands. And then that's a person who can now go out and pick up a new skill and is super durable and super useful. And I think I really like what uh, Georges Hebert, who is the, the founder of MoveNet, you know, the original MoveNet, the French, you know, movement system after World War One, And, you know, George Hebert was like, um, definition of fitness, being useful, right? Which means I want the Swiss army knife, a human body, that a person who is durable and has access to range and is safe and can pick up new skills and can quickly jump into a new kickball game, right? That is the key. And then the gym has sort of altered that a little bit because it's definitely not about who can bench press the more, most. But sometimes it matters how much you bench press. Well, only on Mondays. That's right. Um, I love what you say. That sounds like you have this massive runway of progression and regression. For yes. Yes. We want to take you over to here. At, at the extremes, and I can think of some sports, and, and my, my involvement is much more in the, the powerlifting world, and we can see, you know, first, second, third place at the world level, they're going to have some different tissues. They're not going to be able, the super heavies, their arms aren't going overhead very, very well. So they would have adapted to be pretty good for their sport. At what point do you, do you look at, okay, you need to have so much for, for this, but we need to have restorative range of motion? Or does it just end up being, listen, you're high risk for getting a tweak. You know, like in CrossFit, you'll see the winners can do it all. They're the super athletes, right? But in other sports, there must be some compensation that is needed to be able to perform. Or do you try to say, we just try to always have the, the, the relative norms, the basic norms? Well, you know, it's such a good question because let's take it out of to pitching in baseball, right? Should pitchers be able to put their arms over their head? Yes, they should. And the real question is how much training do we need to be overhead? So is there a reason why you shouldn't be able to put your arms over your head at all? No, there's not a reason. The reason is no one said it was important to you. And, you know, if you look at the health of the shoulder, if you are missing a cardinal plane of motion, you're going to see that that is also going to restrict a whole bunch of other ranges, right? So a normal shoulder has to be able to roll, slide and glide and have all this function. And if you have one range because remember, think about that shoulder capsule and rotator cuff as, as a system. And if part of the system can't express itself, then you basically turned one of the lights off in the room. And it's fine. You have three other lights, but the room isn't as bright as it could be. The real question is, how much training do you have to do in those other positions? And that is a really interesting conversation. Because you know, ultimately, what I want people to appreciate is that we put fitnessing on one side, just do a bunch of hard ass work, go onto the internet, jump in, do a 1000 burpees, you know, sweat hard, breathe, burn million hip thrusts, right? That's fitnessing. And that's great. You're, you got your heart rate up. It's car respiratory, man, like you went to spin class, super cool. Then on the other side of that next to that, we call it GPP, right? which is general physical preparedness, where I'm starting to say, okay, we're going to start to use more compound movements. We're looking at energy systems. We're starting to appreciate bigger ranges of motion, more skill. The next side of that is what we call sports preparation training, 
where we are trying to restore the native abilities of the human and the skill of the human. So if you want to become so specialized that you can't tie your shoe, AKA powerlifters, then, and you don't have any hip extension, when your knee starts hurting, we need to, you to appreciate that as long as you don't extend your hip, you can't load or restore the function of your fascia and you have hidden limitations that you're just not exposing because you're not taking the hip into extension. I'm not talking about standing up from a squat and extending the hip. I'm talking about taking that hip into extension. So here's an example. Um, Travis Mash, who is one of my superstar favorite coaches, so brilliant. Coaching is brilliant. Programming is brilliant. Was having a whole bunch of weird low back issues and some knee stuff with his athletes. And I was like, hey, coach, I need you guys to start spending more time with your athletes and their hip as an extension. And these are Olympic lifters, really competent, good movers. And so they just started throwing in some more Bulgarian split squats and doing a little bit more work in both split positions and spending a little more time lunging and spending a little more time in the split stance. And guess what happened to their back pain injury rates? They dropped to zero in his club. And that's because by being able to extend the hip, you're not just putting all these passive loads through the pelvis that are causing this extension sensitivity. So again, here's a case study of saying, hey, I don't care if you have full range of motion, but you don't have any. So what are we talking about, right? I mean, you can drive your car if your steering wheel only goes to the right. You're going to have to back up and go forward and then back up and go forward. You can do it. Right. You can drive your car if it's only stuck in first gear. You can do it. You totally can do it. It's valid. You'll go very fast in first gear. But I want to give you movement choice. But what we end up seeing, and then this is interesting, is that if we take your assumption on the base, then we move into what we call sports specific training, which is on their side of sports preparation training. And sports specific training is I have one goal during the season to make you better at your sport which means I get to take my eye off of a whole bunch of other stuff. And the only thing I value and measure is how well you do at your sport. But then as soon as you're out of your sport, guess what? You're back into sports preparation training where we look at your foot position. We look at your mechanics. We look at your hip extension. We look at your shoulder and turn rotation, right? Because the problem is you're like, well, I don't have to get into a hang shape, right? This internal high hang pull position for my shoulder when I bench, I'm like, but I'm like, but components of internal rotation of the shoulder are required for good shoulder extension. So if you're missing one of these rotational components, you're going to have crap shoulder extension. So an easy way to begin this is if I have working with athletes in season, I know what's crucial for their sports. And we'll say powerlifting is an example. And it's one that's really confused the world because you don't really have to do everything. You just have to squat mid-range and deadlifting. Everyone should be able to deadlift to the bar and benching is, is weird and super cool. And one of the most technical things we work on and teach, it's so awesome. And I think everyone should floor press for the rest of their life. Amen. I just floor pressed yesterday. Um, but those are very tiny ranges of motion, right? And if I'm talking about... Um, building tolerance in athletes, what I want to say is, well, what's the goal? And the problem with Olympic lifting and CrossFit and powerlifting is it's very recursive training. Instead of I'm going to the gym to train for something else. So if you're a powerlifter, that's totally awesome. And if we're in season, I'm like, okay, let's make sure you have enough range of motion to bench press. Let's make sure you have enough internal rotation to stabilize the shoulder. How much arm over your head? Well, just hang on the bar a little bit and take some breaths at the end of the session. It's very simple to do that in season. Do you have enough hip range of motion to break parallel? Cool, right? Can you flat, are you quad stiff? Cool, let's deal with that. 
But then as soon as we're out of season, we start to open up those ranges. But we have to remember that our goal is to train for something. And what's happened and what confuses people with CrossFit, for example, is that I do more pull-ups so I can do more pull-ups so I can do more pull-ups. When you can do a thousand pull-ups in a row, is that enough? 2000 pull-ups in a row. And at what point am, is my training so gnarly that I can't actually go out and use my fitness anymore? And this is really one of our litmus tests of your training. If, if I'm working with a world champion bike rider and I crush her in the gym and she's weaker and slower on the bike, I'm part of the problem, right? If I can't pick up a new skill because I'm doing all this benching, it's awesome. And I can put my arms over my head and I fall when I ski and dislocate my shoulder. That training was part of the problem because it didn't make me, didn't have, it cost me some of those normative ranges. So I think that's where we can begin to say, okay, well, what's the intent here? And it's absolutely okay to become a deep ninja specialist. Then the coach and you can start to say, well, let's chase normal. So if you're a powerlifter, you're going to be always struggling with full hip extension. But guess what? That's the cost of being a powerlifter. If you're a cyclist, you're going to struggle with full shoulder extension or full you know, hip extension. Great. That's the cost of being a cyclist, right? I wouldn't, you wouldn't hold up cycling as the best way to train the body. I would say the same thing about powerlifting. So I, what we can then do is take these tools that we love and the best bang for the buck. And I'm a huge fan of single leg work, of split work, but I also believe it's okay to squat right? I, I'm not one of those people like, let's not squat. I'm like, squatting is rad. Everyone should front squat like it's their job. But when we begin to sort of ask why, what are we training for? Then we get to have a much more informed conversation other than I'm the best in the world at this sport. So everyone should train like this. Cause I'm like, well, if you can squat 600 and deadlift 700, how well do you run? And if you want to see what I'm talking about, go on to Instagram and watch some of the strongest CrossFitters try to sprint. And you'll see that there's a real cost. Watch some of our powerlifters trying to sprint. And there's a real cost to that sport. And that's okay, as long as you're willing to make that, that cost. But you can't hold that up and say, see, it's the best. These are amazing points. And one of the things that comes to mind is sports that, you know, maybe our parents played or in their time it was, okay, the winter you play hockey in the summer you play baseball and mm. there were seasonal sports that's right seems like there's not very many seasonal sports now Power no lifting crossfit you just go hard year. <laughs> oh well you can look at those seasonal sports as as exposure to different ranges and movement patterns and again remember i said well can you put your arms over your head in these different conditions well now you what you have is conjugate moving systems right so how clever of Louis Simmons to say, hey, let's put a, this bar, let's change your stance, let's add a band, let's make it box, let's squat narrow. There's so many ways to do the same squat that's slightly different. And so the brain loves novelty and the brain is a sol problem solving machine. And so if I put a bunch of kids into a whole lot of different sports, I'm exposing different tissues. Like we, we really say, it's about overuse. And I'm like, well, if my kids are engaged in, like I have a daughter who plays water polo. She's 12. She loves water polo. We kind of play year round. There are times where we don't play for big chunks of time, but you know, it's okay to swim year round. She's a swimmer. The same way you walk around, but she also is an Olympic lifting club. She also rides her bike. She also skis a ton. She also likes to paddle. And you know, if my kid is doing strength and conditioning year round, there's no reason why she can't swim year round. Right. But there are seasons where it's highly emphasized and seasons where it's a couple of days a week for an hour in her club. That's not the same thing. And 
what we used to do was expose ourselves to a lot more different movement patterning. And that was part of the solution. We also probably needed some formal movement training and we needed a little bit more progression of load because let me just say, this may be unpopular, but I've worked in a lot of gyms and owned a lot of gyms for a long time and squatting doesn't solve all the problems. Right. And if it did, we would just all squat. And I think that's really a cute solution. Oh, you know what your problem is with squatting? You're not squat enough. Oh, really? Because I've seen a lot of people squat a lot for many, many years, almost two decades, and it doesn't always solve the problem. The first order of business, if you're having problems with squatting, is to squat and to make sure that your squatting is looking good. We can slow down, we can pause, we can keep you uncompensated. But what we know is more soccer just doesn't make and inoculate you against soccer, right? You have to play soccer to be inoculated against soccer. But when we, you know, the key for all high-level sports, if we say it's mechanics, mechanics are the heart of every strength conditioning program. Well, then what does it look like when mechanics are off? And what we haven't done is given people very good benchmarks of being able to identify when a position is incomplete. And that's better language than saying, this is a good position, this is a bad position. That position is this incomplete, which means gives you less force, gives you less movement choice, gives you less movement options, right? It, le- it doesn't transfer to other movements very well. And so, yes, you can absolutely turn your feet out and squat, but you're going to be a shitty basketball player when you have to go cut, or you're going to be really slow, or you're not going to be able to pick that up or ride a bike very effectively or ski with your feet turned out like ducks. Mm -hmm. So again, the real question is what are we training for? And why is it that we're having these kind of weird conversations about how unique your hips are? I'm like, really? I just don't, I just don't see it. You mentioned uh, your daughter and your father, uh, two girls, and um, I'm a dad. I got two little boys myself. and I'm very interested in seeing how they are growing and developing. Mm. When they do movements, they do little sports and stuff. My eyes always very much glued to it. You have this stand-up kids program out in San Francisco. Could you talk about that for a second? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that we started to see was we were applying, we were going into these high-performance environments um, and big corporate environments and, you know, people were sitting so much. And the sedentary science is very clear. But in our athletic positions, we were seeing that athletes were, some of our college athletes were spending 12 to 14 hours sitting, and then they were having a hard time extending their hip. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Right? So what we saw was that we weren't getting enough movement. And let's appreciate that part of the movement idea is we need you to accumulate enough non-exercise activity to actually decongest your tissues through the movement of the lymphatics, through muscle contraction. We need you to accumulate enough non-exercise activity fatigue that you actually fall asleep, right? That you actually need to load your feet in order for your feet to be strong. So all of a sudden, what we see is that we're putting people in these sensory deprivation experiences where they don't move and they're on a flat surface and they're wearing cushy shoes. And they're basically, they don't take their hips through a range of motion. They sit at 90, they stand, they sit and stand, and that's it. They don't sit on the floor, they don't do yoga. They squat to 90 at the gym. They just, they go through whole months without having to go beyond 90 degrees potentially. So we were working with Google and some of these big companies on trying to help solve this employee health issue. And what we saw was that in companies that created environments where there was more movement choice, people worked harder. They felt better at their bodies. They had less user absenteeism, that sort of thing, right? Less, fewer musculoskeletal problems. And number one was just giving some change from sitting. So Harvard defines sedentary lifestyle 
and all of the sort of downstream insulin insensitivity, poor leptin sensitivity, the, all the th problems with being sedentary um, with sitting more than six hours a day. So it's not mine. And we'll define it's not sitting. It's falling below one and a half metabolic equivalents. So if you've ever been on an old Stairmaster, it says METs, like how many METs am I burning? Well, that's, that's a unit of work, like an ERG is a unit of work. And so most of us are familiar with watts, but ergs and mets are all the same thing. So when you sit down in a chair, you pretty much fall below one and a half metabolic equivalents. But if you're leaning against the bar stool, using your trunk a little bit more weight bearing, you're above one and a half metabolic equivalents. It's like the big study that came out that showed the Nintendo Wii burned as many calories as standing. Like, whoa, crazy, right? So what we realize we're trying to do is get people to move more during the day. And that's really the key. It's not about sitting versus standing. It's about moving versus not moving. And then we just turned around and looked at our kids and we happened to watch our kids in this elementary school. And these kids were sitting all at the same height desk on all the same size chairs. And all the chairs are designed so the custodian staff can stack them and clean. That's what they're designed for. They're not designed for bodies. Watch the kids fidget. Watch their body positions. Watch how well they breathe. So you have this growing bodies in these little bitty hunchback positions and they're not sitting, they're not moving. So we created standing, moving, movement rich environments that kids could sit on the ground. They could write, they could, you know, stand and perch. They had a place to put their foot and swing. They could fidget. And every desk was individualized to the child. So you don't send kids to school all wearing the same size shoe, but the kids all wear the same size desks. And we had these kids in the fifth grade who were almost six feet tall and kids in the sixth, fifth grade who are literally four foot five. Right. And they're at the same size desk and the same size chairs. I'm like, that's super weird. So we went into our elementary school and talked to the teacher about applying what we were learning in high level performance and in, in human experience and applying it to the masses. And so we flipped our daughter's school after running a little pilot program and we had 500 kids go from sitting all day long to sitting, standing, to standing, moving. And lo and behold, they're tested better. They slept better. They had better behavior, right? Everything that was important, you know, to teachers, to parents that, you know, got better. And the kids didn't have to sit and get, and get sleepy. Then the only problem we ran into was that some of the teachers got through their curriculum a month earlier because they were so efficient. Their kids were faster at learning and picking up, so they had to do more work. And that's really the hidden message here that we think we're working as hard as we can, but we're actually not. You think you're right limited, but you can actually go faster. You can feel fresher. You can have more energy. So we started applying that after the first all-standing school in the world to as many different schools as we could. And we actually engaged in our first uh, serious research with Cal Berkeley. We've been following these three schools for last year in COVID trying to get, and what we see is that kids do not have understandings of how to eat, how to move, how to self-care. Uh, we've been doing more data tracking on movement. And it turns out our kids are walking two to 3000 steps a day, not 10,000 steps a day. So, you know, if we look at the state's um, sort of need or governance to, have enough physical activity during the day, kids aren't actually getting that. And what we love about having these more movement rich environments is that you don't have to program to it. You don't have to teach it. You don't have to have another employee. You don't have to have our staff. It's not another P thing. It's just working in the background. So you get, you get sort of multiple bottom lines. And our, again, our thinking is, Hey, we're having a movement problem 
a movement total activity problem. And we don't even have to talk about, are you sprinting yet? We're just talking about, hey, how do we get more movement in? And the easiest way to do that is to constrain the environment. So, you know, and let me make this so you can understand. If you don't want to get drunk at your home, don't buy a bunch of alcohol in your home. If you don't want to eat cookies like me, I can have cookies in the house. If there are cookies in the house, I'm going to eat all the cookies. So I just don't have cookies in the house. And if I want a cookie, I go buy cookies, right? So that is an example of a environmental constraint, sort of extreme ones. But all we're trying to do is shape the environment so we have better outcomes. And so we don't have to make another choice. And I think that's what we're really trying to do is simplify and stream, streamline people's lives and best physical behavior so they have better outcomes. What do these desks look like? Are these desks that adjust from height? They go up? Yep. Yep. And they have a place to put your foot on. So there are these places before the pandemic used to be called pubs or bars. Maybe you've ever heard of them. Well, it's interesting that the bar height is that height for a reason. So you can lean against it. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's a place to put your foot on the rail down below. Right. It's like the bartenders figured out that if you gave people a place to lean, and a place to put their foot, they would stick around and drink all day. And then you give them a bar stool so they could rest sometimes. Well, guess what? That's the technology we're using. We're using that technology. It's proven. And uh, so when you shape the environment to, to meet the person, then all of a sudden it's it's much better outcome. There's a reason why your counters are not the same height as your table. They're better and easier to work there. So we're just doing the same thing and applying that same technology to your work environment. I just pictured you walk into your daughter's school. They're having, they have no idea who you are, what you do. Uh -uh. Say, hey, you ever see Moe's Bar? We want to do something like that from the Simpsons. That's right. It's like that. Hey, hey, kids, who knows who Captain Morgan is? Raise your hand. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's just, you know, oftentimes we really, when people are like, well, why do people eat crappy or why do they sleep? I'm like, well, who taught them? Who taught you to run? Who taught you to eat? Who taught you to self-soothe? Who taught you to how to go to sleep and have sleep hygiene? No one did. You figure this out yourself. And so what we're doing and realizing that we're probably going to lose a generation of people because we crush them with sugar sodas and high calorie foods and no movement and video games. And we never said that this is important and that you, those things are fine in moderation. What we said was, oh, look, it's not really a problem until, oh my gosh, it's such a problem. So, you know, with kids, what we've realized, and again, no one is is beyond working to save. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is um, what we figured out is that when we started earlier in the process, when we began this conversation in elementary school, then kids have some education. It sounds to me that that's what physical education was PE physical education. How do I move when something hurts? What do I do? How do I sleep? How do I learn how to cook? These are all skills of being a human being. And if my teachers can teach my kids math and reading, they can teach them to move or they can teach them to fidget. They can teach them to squat. They can teach them to breathe. They do yoga and mindful training. That's that simple. We just have to start earlier so that it's such a less of an issue. And one of the things we saw with one of our friends, who's a researcher out of Texas A&M here is that kids on average earn gain one to two body mass index points a year. So, you know, you're maybe at 12, then you're at 14, right? And kids who stood and had movement choice went the other direction. They lost one or two body mass index points. So if it's two body mass index points, there's suddenly a spread over two years of eight points. One kid goes up four points. The other kid goes down four points. And now you have a difference in those two children of eight body mass index points. 
add that to the next year and it's another four, add it to the next year and it's another four. And those cohorts start to get really far apart. So if we're going to look at this as public health, if we're going to talk about in earnest taking care of our citizenry, then the least we can do is educate our children and create environments in which our children are thriving. Um, when you came into my world, it was all fitness-based, but it sounds mm. your reach, your reach has gone not just to the athletic side, but also into the youth of tomorrow. As our time comes to an end here today, what's one or two tips of advice that you would give parents to assist in the education component of kids getting healthy? And one or two tips of advice you'd give to everyday people to be better for ready state life. Oh, so good. Um, you know, turns out what's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? Um, what gets measured gets managed. And I'm such a fan of the Apple Watch and the Whoop and the Oura Ring, you know, Amazon Halo. Why? Because they encourage you to move more. And again, I wear a good old classic analog watch. But before I got on here, you're like, how are you doing? I'm like, good. I just got back from my hour long walk this morning. I get my kids up. I make breakfast. Juliet makes lunch. And then I'm gone at seven, right? And usually walk for 30 or 45 minutes with my dog. It's this big ridge. And, and the idea is I need more non-exercise. This isn't my exercise for the day. It's not my training. But if my day goes to hell in a handbasket, I've still done something. I've put some input in, right? And so we're trying to get people to move more. Um, we're trying to get people to be barefoot more in their homes. We're trying to get people to sit on the ground more. But the one thing that would radically change your life and your children's life is to sleep more. And what I want people to understand, and we've borrowed this from Kirk Parsley, who is a, he was a Navy SEAL physician working on sleep in the teams. We want you to appreciate that, yes, you can easily get by on four or five hours of sleep, right? We know that that's possible. Have a newborn. Let me know how it goes for you, Right. Be start in a startup phase or jump on a red eye. And let's say that we're super tolerant. So it's not going to be the end of the world. I mean, you sleep less than six hours of sleep. You're, you're pre-diabetic for the next 24 hours. It's totally fine, but you're just pre-diabetic. You know, you're, it, it's a stressor. So when we begin to say, okay, well, what do we do about that? Well, turns out we like seven hours as the minimum threshold for survivability. So if you get seven hours or less, you're or seven hours, less than seven hours is terrible. Seven is minimum. That means you may need to be in bed for eight hours to actually get seven hours of sleep because an hour is of disruptance is totally normal. So disruption, right? Getting up, peeing, hearing noises, changing, light sleep. That's okay. That's part of it. Somewhere between a half hour and an hour night. But our baseline for humans is eight hours. That's eight hours. Now the brain's like, okay, okay, okay. And when we look at the incidence of and pre prevalence of chronic pain and persistent pain, one of the things that happens is if you work with me around injury, then you and you aren't sleeping more than eight hours. I can't even tell what the hell's going on because your brain is so threat. And so I make everyone I work with track their sleep. You have to track your sleep. And it's easy to do that, right? They have all these apps and it's so easy. But if you are dealing with injury or pain, I need you to track your sleep. And that means I need you in bed and asleep for at least eight hours a night. Ideally, if you're growing or under a huge load, that's nine hours of sleep. That means you may need to set an hour, your clock an hour before you go to bed and start to prepare yourself so that when you hit the bed, boom, it's out, you're gone. And that you're really protecting your sleep. And it's, it's again, one of those things where humans are so tolerant and so robust that you can buffer crappy sleep for a long time, but you're not maximizing your potential through your brain or your body. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Uh, Matthew Walker put out a book on why we sleep. And he talks oh, about yeah. 
I read that one there. He talks about the effects on dementia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just, it, I mean, you can really much choose something. Uh, Ariana Huffington is sort of my favorite uh, version because, you know, she was working herself so hard, she just passed out, you know, from fatigue. You know, um, I've had the pleasure of working with uh, President Obama, and he told me directly that if he'd slept more, he would have been a better president. So um, I think everyone comes to appreciate that sleeping is really important but we don't guard it and brag about it, right? One of the fun things that we see is that Whoop allows you to create teams. And so all of my wife and all our friends are on Whoop and they get to watch and see how all of that is working. And they're like, wow, look at your heart rate variability. You know, what's going on, you know? Um, so when we begin to just become aware of patterns, and again, we're using technology to bring awareness to something. You don't need to be a slave to your device, but if you don't know what the practices are, you can't change them, right? And I think what we want you to appreciate is that you think you're kicking butt, but you're just getting by. And, uh, you know, and that's okay. If, if you want to get C's, that's totally okay. But I'm in the game where I don't like to get C's. I like to get A's. And A's are a lot easier than you think. If it turns out in college, if you go to class and do the reading, you get A's. It's pretty easy. They tell you what's on the test. But if you don't do the reading and you don't go to class, you scramble and scramble and scramble and get like rough B. And you can do that, but it's not the, not the best practice. I think he can make sleep sexy again if he just create a, a sleep wad. That's all you need. Oh. Dude, sleep wad is, that's such a great idea. Sleep, we just need more sleep wad. I to totally agree. Um, you know, so, you know, what we've become interested in is I think we're really focused and obsessed on the sexy details, like which program are you like? I do Matt Frazier's program. I do Rich Froning's program. I do Jason Klepa's program. I'm like, well, that's cool. But you eat like a child and you don't sleep and you don't move during the day. So I can't, you're not even taking a full bite of the apple. You're just nibbling on it. Let's take some big bites of the apple. I think that's what I want people to know is that I want them to know that they are really tolerant. Their bodies are amazing. They're not, they don't fail you. They've got your back and they're designed to be a hundred years old. So let's just do a little, let's do the minimum. I'm not talking about sleeping 10 or 11 hours and napping and eating like a monk. I'm talking about alcohol is proof of God's love. Sugar is, 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 not the, is not the devil like we think it is. Yeah, you shouldn't be crash, crushing sugar, but you should be eating all the vegetables, all the fruits, all the proteins. Then if you need to have some ice cream, I don't think that's the limiting factor, right? 100%. 100%. Kelly, you are the king of analogies, my friend. I love, oh, that's how my brain works. I love everyone you brought in here today. And that's why you're such a phenomenal educator. Uh, formally, I'd like to thank you for being on the podcast today. Pleasure. We look forward to being a part with uh, Ready State, and I'm going to be linking that stuff uh, in the show notes here, including the stand-up kids. Anything that can help you help other people, I think, is just spreading the word. So formally, thank you so much for being on the Project Fitness Podcast. Total pleasure. And just to remind everyone, we have a free two-week uh, membership to our site where we'll teach you how to do some basic self-maintenance on your tissues. Awesome. And uh and so we've got a two-week on-ramp program. So if you're like, hey, I always wondered how to deal with painful knee or what are the, the foundations of mobility and how do I kind of care about this? We created a two-week program to get you spun up during your trial and so you have full access to the world, but also we'll teach you a little bit. That's perfect. I'm actually going to sign up for that this afternoon. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, our new app is coming out. Should be drop It's in a soft launch and should be dropping in a week or so and prepare to have your mind blown. It's really good. 
very excited. So anyone listening, looking at the show notes, I'll, I'll put all that stuff in there. Kelly, thank you so much for coming on today. I wish you an awesome and amazing day. We'll see you in Ontario soon. Thanks, buddy. Never stop learning because life never stops teaching. If you've learned at least one thing from this podcast and your mission is to help other people, please share this podcast with them. And a reminder, we will be releasing one episode every Monday for the entire year. So make sure to hit subscribe so you get the updated information as soon as possible. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. And thank you so much for allowing me to be part of it.